Welcome to the Redemptive Edge. I'm Mary Elizabeth Goodell, the Community Manager at Praxis, and I'm here with my teammates Dave Blanchard, co-founder and CEO, and Andy Crouch, the partner for Theology and Culture. Together, the two of them wrote a set of three articles that speak to the opportunity before us as redemptive leaders as we navigate the cultural climate created by COVID-19. Today, we'll be continuing the conversation from our 2020 Redemptive Imagination Summit, which we hosted virtually in early May. Andy, as we get started, the overall title of the event was Designing for a Different Future. Can you tell us why that was the focus? Yeah, it's so great to get to talk through some of these ideas. And I think that what we were trying to do at our summit with our community, we had, I guess, about 390 members of our community with us uh, for a couple of days, for three days, was to uh, get our sights past just the immediate horizon of what we've all been living through uh, in COVID-19 and all the immediate challenges of what we've called the blizzard and the winter, and actually start to think about the opportunity that we have right now to design in a different way. And um, I think there's a lot of desire to go back to normal. uh, And in some ways, that's really understandable. But there's a real opportunity here to go forward to something different. And so we wanted to uh, think with our community about what that could look like. Yeah. Dave, how do you think about designing for a different future? Yeah. You know, I would just add to what Andy said there, where I think, you know, as we gather now, um, and as we did at that summit, we we do need to think about lament. Uh, we need, do need to have uh, time to process grief, but we also need to move from that um, to optimistically joining together to uh, not design the future in the sense that we know what that's going to be and we have that under control, uh, but to design for something that we know will be different. Um, with the hope that whatever that different is, um, it's not necessarily something that we have to uh, lament itself. We That future could actually be uh, much better than uh, what we occupied as the status quo and thought was just fine, um, or uh, areas where we really wanted to improve, but there was too many systematic obstacles uh, to get there. This, uh, this time to gather is a time to think optimistically about the future. Yeah. You begin in the piece with a look back on what the blizzard has been like and what we've learned, especially as it relates to our desire for control or withdrawal in the face of suffering. How has that tendency tendency been exposed or even maybe heightened by this pandemic? <laughs> you know, what I think about is uh, for many of us who were in, you know, essentially lockdown conditions, that is asked to stay at home, asked to not go out. Uh, some of us, of course, were still working and, and many people had to go out and continue to work if they were essential workers. But a lot of people were suddenly, uh, we all, we had a lot of time on our hands, a lot of flexibility. And when you think about what you dreamed of doing, um, mm-hmm. when you first realized you were going to have, a, maybe you initially thought it was a couple weeks, you know, of of this suddenly unstructured time, maybe in pretty close quarters with your, you know, family or housemates or whatever. Um, I think a lot of us actually had great ambitions for what this could be like. And we thought, oh, I'll finally get to read that book. And, you know, I, I actually myself thought I'll get to practice the piano and, you know, do things that when I'm traveling or you know, whatever, I don't have as much time to do. Mm-hmm. But then we discover how traumatic this experience is. And and in the response to the anxiety that we feel, the difficulty of living very proximately to other people or living uh, in a very isolated way, uh, we're actually experiencing a very intensive kind of uh, suffering, uh, at least mental and emotional, uh, probably spiritual, in some cases physical. 
And our response to that is not this sort of um, overwhelming creativity and <laughs> sense of discipline and possibility. And instead, we find ourselves in this two place on two places on this two by two that we share with every class of Praxis Fellows, where if you look at authority and vulnerability, when we try to minimize vulnerability, we either go to a high, high authority version of high authority, low vulnerability, which is control, and all the ways that we try to gain a sense of control in our circumstances. Um, I think for me, maybe the, the main way that showed up was in just relentless like consumption of information. Like if I just can learn enough about this and get some enough accurate predictions, you know, but then there's also withdrawal, which is the low authority, low vulnerability corner. It's the lower left in the two by two. And and I think about, um, well, just even physically how sleepy I was all the time, like how much I wanted to sleep. And that was basically yeah. my body saying, I have experienced way too much trauma, anxiety, difficulty. I just need to withdraw. And part of that is so natural and unavoidable. Um, but those aren't the most healthy places to stay. And I think we all discovered how easily we went to some combination of control and withdrawal. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. You you talk about the role of a rule of life in diagnosing those areas where we might be most likely to buckle under stress. So some of those things you mentioned. Could both of you maybe share the areas in the, in the rule of life where you felt like you needed the most help with during the past few months? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in on that one. Uh, first here, I think, you know, probably in a way that resonates with many of our listeners. Uh, one of the category areas inside that rule of life is time. Um, and as soon as you really get a sense for all the things that are unfolding, I think there's this natural human tendency to just control, right? And so the way um, an entrepreneur like myself uh, can do that is by just working that much harder, right? And um, the our, our our practice uh, baseline practices here include uh, taking Sabbath rest, and um, I was able to do that uh, still. But there's something tricky about that, right? We can we can cease our uh, keyboard work, if you will, um, but the mind can keep racing and running, mm -hmm. especially because you know, in a kind of sneaky way, half the work here was trying to figure out what was coming, and so you know, checking the the news uh, in the morning online and taking in the articles. Um, it was hard to cease from that work mm -hmm. and I think continues to be hard to know where to draw the line. Is this a time for, uh, for us to um, completely just, you know, do as much as we can and work as hard as possible? Um, or should we be, you know, really calibrating and figuring out normal rest routines and things like that? And the, the further we get into this, the more I realize that, um, yes, there are, you know, as we talk about sometimes bursts and seasons and things like that, but the more intense the season uh, of uncertainty, I think the more we need our regular rhythms and rest particularly. I mean, I know I've talked to a number of people, Andy, I think you too, that uh, we've surprised ourselves with how much sleep we need. Yeah. Um, I find myself uh, often sleeping nine, even 10 hours a night, uh, a couple times a week, just to, I think, recover from the brain cycles of all the change that's going on right now. <laughs> yeah, for me, I think it was imagination, which is one of our six areas. And uh, as I mentioned, this kind of need for information, which actually doesn't necessarily activate my imagination in a helpful way. Like it, I get very caught up in all that I'm learning and all that I could project based on what I'm learning. But, but that's a little different from having a really rich imaginative life. So 
I, uh, I took up a, an imaginative practice. I, we recommend in our rule of life reading um, things that you wouldn't normally read or reading fiction or reading imaginative literature. My whole family is really into the Lord of the Rings. And I have only read it, I think I, maybe I've read it twice in my life, but a long time ago. So I actually reread the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and then I attempted the Silmarillion and I decided I didn't need that much imagination. <laughs> Just could not. I couldn't do it. Um, but honestly, it was so good for me to like at the end of the day, rather than picking up my iPad and, and just reading more news um, mm-hmm. to to read, you know, it, what turns out they're pretty good books. Uh, it turns out uh, kind of interesting. <laughs> so <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, yeah, it was really good for me. And and so I've continued to read fiction and, and just totally different kinds of writing um, regularly as, as we've gone further into this. Yeah. Well, and I, um, I love in the piece, there's a part, the heading says, you're going to need a rule. So you guys have talked <laughs> about the places, these areas, right? And Praxis has written this rule of life. So why do you think why do you think that a rule is so critical to leaders during this time? What do you think people are risking if they don't subscribe to a routine? I mean, the big thing about a rule, I, I would say, is it uh, until you have a rule, you don't know what your compulsions are, because mm. a rule of life mm. is a, a set of promises to handle the the most sort of delicate and dangerous areas of your life with intentionality. And once you've actually committed to something like I'm going to take a Sabbath one day a week, then you suddenly discover your compulsion to work. Once you've committed, I'm not going to start my day with my phone. Then you discover how much your phone like calls to you, <laughs> you know, in the morning. And so I think the interesting thing about a rule of life is we think of it as kind of a prescription for how to live, which it is, but it's actually also a diagnosis. It's a way of holding wow. our life up to what we know would be the healthiest way to live. And it's only when we actually have that in place that we realize, oh my goodness, I do not naturally normally live this way. Mm-hmm. Dave, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I would just um, echo all that and just say, I think on the risk side of things for entrepreneurial leaders, there's really two that are very pronounced to me. One is that you do trick yourself into a seasons mentality and you say, okay, well, I'm just going to go for it. And you actually mm-hmm. never really come up from it uh, mm-hmm. until you're totally burned out. And mm-hmm. we, we think, you know, as we talk about a blizzard, a winter and an ice age, that's true for you personally as well. So you've got to be able to sustain the winter at a minimum uh, and uh, hopefully be physically and emotionally and mentally ready to come out uh, whenever that time is. The other risk uh, is that we are, I think, as leaders right now, very much under the microscope. So Whatever you do, whatever routines you don't have, um, will one be exposed <laughs> to others around you, and probably worse, mimicked in the sense that uh, people will say, "Oh, I guess that's the mode we're in right now." And so, by putting some of these diagnostic structures around your life, uh, you at least have a have a chance to uh, model that well for others. Yeah, Andy, let's turn back to you. In the piece, you talk about that normalcy snapback wanting to get yeah. back to the way things were, wanting to get back to normal. And it, in a lot of ways, it sounds really good. We had, it seems like we had fewer problems back in the old days. Why should we be wary of that? Of that the old instinct? days, two, two months ago. <laughs> February. <laughs> I mean, uh, they weren't that great. People were hmm. unbelievably anxious. Um, there was there were huge inequities in our world. Um, 
the one gift that we got very, very briefly, I think it's gone now, but the one gift we got from COVID-19 was a sense of equal exposure to risk and a sense of equal sacrifice in a way. Everyone was staying home. Um, And we don't want to just snap back to a way of living that, well, for one thing, was in fact very vulnerable to these kinds of systemic disruptions. Um, and, and it's not like there won't be more pandemics in the future. I mean, these things come along, uh, with some regularity in human history. So if we just go back to normal, we're saying going, going back to that anxious time when we really were not prepared to love our neighbor and with a kind of solidarity care for the most vulnerable. Uh, I don't think we want to go back. I think we have to think about a, a more creative and restorative kind of response. Yeah. In the in the second article of the three, you talk about the Overton window, which was actually something I wasn't familiar with. But Dave, I know you were especially excited to introduce that framework to the to the community. Can you tell us more about what it is and, and why it applies now? Yeah, well, I think picking up on where Andy just left off there, um, as we start to think about designing for a different future and the creative response that's possible now, um, we shouldn't just go out and build immediately, um, but we should also ask ourselves what is possible now that maybe wasn't possible a couple months ago um, for a variety of reasons. And the Overton window is a political theory um, that uh, talks about actually when legislators can introduce um, new ideas um, into uh, policy. And it, it looks at a spectrum uh, from kind of the unthinkable and radical and talks about how ideas move into a realm of feasibility that ultimately become popular and then policy. And uh, I really think this is a great framework for the entrepreneur who often in the uh, garage, uh, metaphorically or literally, is introducing a radical idea into the world and hoping that over time it becomes uh, something that we all adopt. And uh, that's you know critical, yes, for markets, but it's also very interesting to think about it as far as the opportunity to in- introduce new conceptual uh, ideas into the market and into the world. And so we have to ask ourselves, what what is it about this new time that allows us to to bring things into the world in an accelerated fashion that the world really needs. And I would say, for one, we should be looking at how things have shifted already. And then we should also be thinking, what can we shift um, in, a, in a way that was, uh, was not possible? So uh, you might, as you, as you think about this, you might say, oh, well, all these industry norms in, let's say, restaurant touring, mm. um, there were ways that people on a restaurant team were typically treated. Now they're saying a third of the restaurants in Manhattan, arguably the restaurant touring capital of the world, will not reopen. What does that mean for someone who's passionate about food? Does that mean, oh, just go find another industry that's over? Or does it actually mean, gosh, what what new way could we craft out that really creates a redemptive model for how to bless people inside the organization and renew uh, the broader food culture. The ideas there, once you start really pressing in, I think are plenty. Hmm. Yeah. When when we talk about this idea of designing for a different future, and you guys have hit on that, right? This This new future with all of these different opportunities, there's a different way that you can approach it. So in this last piece, you talk about prediction versus promise and what drives you and what's kind of motivating you to shape that future and to really imagine it. Can you can you explain the difference between what it looks like to try 
predict predicting over living by promise. Yeah, this was, um, I felt like this was the most fun, uh, and fruitful idea that I came to, at least in the course of our work preparing for the summit, because I was thinking about all these models, right? So we, we, we've gotten really, we feel like we've gotten good at this in the modern, the modern world. Uh, you know, we predict the weather way better than we used to. And how do we do it? We have huge amounts of data. They go into these very sophisticated, iteratively tested models, uh, usually computationally assisted, often these days assisted by machine learning, and out comes a path, a, a kind of a, a prediction of the future. And 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 the goal here is really a kind of control over the future. If I, if I can map out what's going to happen based on what has happened, I'll be able to sort of navigate the future better. At least I'll know whether to bring an umbrella or not. And even in, I mean, the weather is a super complex system, but we have gotten better at it um, than than human beings used to be. But what we all experienced uh, in in late February, in the at least in North America, in early March, was that the most important things we fail to predict, um, hmm. by far the most important things. And uh, and then the really weird thing is, actually, we do predict them. It's just that it doesn't matter because actually this pandemic was predicted. I mean. Bill Gates predicted it uh, at least five years ago, if not 10 years ago, and put huge amounts of his own resources behind it, the resources of his and his wife's family foundation. George W. Bush, when he was president, gave a major address on this very scenario and stood up a whole set of governmental resources. And then you look at all the other big events of the 21st century, and they were actually all predicted, but it didn't matter. Uh, so there's this like really weird thing that we we actually can predict in a sense, but not in a way that that becomes available and actionable. So the very thing we look to to give us a sense of normalcy and what's tomorrow going to be like, what's next year going to be like, actually breaks down in this just incredibly ironic, paradoxical way when we most need it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and we think it's going to reduce our risk, but actually by giving us a sort of false sense of what's coming, it actually can increase our risk. So that's like the great irony of our modern kind of attempt to predict and project. So then we talk about the, this totally different alternative, which is promise. And promise is a, a totally different way of relating to the future where you actually commit yourself to something in a future that you acknowledge is unknowable and unpredictable, but you bind yourself in a way to, to some good thing and often to some good community or, or person. Um, and you just say, whatever comes this, I, uh, I will do my best, uh, to, mm -hmm. to live this way. So, uh, you know, the kind of classic example in a way, uh, I m married my wife, Catherine in July of uh, 1994. And I'm very pleased that I actually was able to remember that date, July 3rd, 1994, <laughs> uh, off the top of my head. Um, and what did I say? I, Andrew predict that I will have and hold you, Catherine, as my wife for the rest of our life. No, I, <laughs> how in the world could I have said, I predict, you know, that I will be faithful, that I will love you above all others, that, that whatever comes, I will, you know, honor you. No, what I said was, I, uh, I make this vow. I don't, that's not quite the word I use, but you know, in the name of God, I, Andrew, take you, Catherine, to do this in this way, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And if I had had, had the foolishness to stand in front of Catherine and say, I'm predicting that I'll do this, like she had no data or models that would <laughs> confirm this, right? You know, based on my past relationships, can't you see 
<laughs> quite the opposite, right? But because I said, I promise, I actually changed the future. I changed the shape mm-hmm. of the future. Now, it feels unbelievably risky to do that because we don't know what's coming. And I mean, I have friends who have lost their spouses to cancer. I have friends who have gone bankrupt with their spouse, uh, like literally the, as poor as you, our society allows you to get. Um, every terrible thing that can happen could happen. And my wife and I have had our own sequence of experiences. Um, and it, it's so risky to commit yourself in that way. But the flip side is it actually reduces your your vulnerability to the unknown because you have this bond of trust and this relationship. So prediction is meant to give us a sense of control and reduce our risk. It actually makes us our lives more risky in these black swan, unexpected kind of ways. Promise seems to make us more vulnerable, but it actually enfolds us in the kinds of relationships that will sustain us through whatever vulnerabilities are coming. It's it's two totally different ways to live. Hmm. I want to I want to take a closer look at that because Dave earlier you were talking about as someone who's leading a venture you f- you want to predict for your team you want to know what's coming up you want to know how to lead them and how to guide them so what do you think this looks like for entrepreneurs who to live by promise when there's so much that's uncertain about the future Yeah this is so important for uh entrepreneurial leaders to get right and you know I think in one sense this is not just a question for the moment, but a question uh, always, <laughs> because so much of the entrepreneurial life is actually setting out to convince other people that what you're working on deserves more resources, more energy, their attention. And so I think a lot of the entrepreneurs we have the fortune of working with and the redemptive entrepreneur in some sense is always making promises uh, of a lighter variety than Andy's marriage, but uh, to funders who they take resources from that they will steward them in an appropriate way and that mm-hmm. they they actually see a certain amount of growth coming that that uh, is worthy of those resources. They're making promises to their team that um, they are committed to this this work and this mission and um, that you know they're gonna do certain certain activities. Now, uh, of course we get the kind of hyperbolic, uh, charismatic founders who I think actually you would say are out there making predictions. We're going to take yeah. over this industry, disrupt everyone yeah. in sight. There's uh, in, you know, in some ways, if you see an entrepreneur who's that confident about the future, you can almost guarantee that that thing's going to implode at some point um, mm-hmm. because it's running on the sort of false promise of prediction, right? Um, in these huge models and uh, and huge narrative, and so uh, I think in in one sense that's our our job as entrepreneurs should always be to um, to the extent we can make relational promises to the people that we partner with in carrying out our work. And right now, I think there's two promises that um, most leaders should be thinking about making um, to those around them and to themselves. Um, one is just that. Uh, we should promise to be redemptive in our in our actions. Um, mm-hmm. There's no reason. There's no scenario, uh, even if you're going out of business in flames, where you can't say, "I'm going to do this as redemptively as possible. I'm going to take the time, mm-hmm. the energy, and I'm going to do creative restoration through sacrifice, even if the costs to that are great." And some of the the greatest Christian and secular stories of uh, entrepreneurial communities are actually things that failed that then gave birth to something else later. 
um, birth to communities and so on. So that's that's the first one, just a promise to to redemptive action, to, to be renewing the culture up or down and to be blessing the people, whether you're going up or down. The other is what um, we talk about a lot at Praxis, which is this Nietzschean phrase that's you know most famously known in Christian circles by Eugene Peterson, which is having a long obedience in the same direction. Many of us were called um, in some way or another to a particular issue, mission, group of people, place, and now is the testing ground for that. Uh, will we give it up as soon as it gives up on us <laughs> in a way and we don't see a pathway forward? Um, or will we stay committed to it, even if that means mm. the current expression, the current venture doesn't survive? Will we stay committed to those people, committed to that place? Um, now, you know, there's vari- varieties and seasons for callings, but I think we all uh, know if we do the soul seeking um, with the Lord and with those around us, what the things are that we are really supposed to have that long obedience to. And I think we can make a, a, a promise to ourselves and to others um, that we will stay in it. I think this is so good. And it, it strikes me that promise operates at a, a kind of a deeper level than prediction. Prediction operates at the level of events and outcomes, which we really cannot control and cannot guarantee. I mean, we, you know, it's not wrong to model uh, what we hope will happen, <laughs> but promise is so much, um, it's so much more fundamental. Uh, whether it's, I have just, you know, you, I think of my friend Gary Haugen, who's founded this thing called International Justice Mission. It happens to have been very successful in retrospect, but there were many moments of unknown and possible total mm. failure along the way, especially early mm. on. But but I met Gary just after he had come back from um, leading the UN's genocide investigation in Rwanda, and his life had been had been permanently reoriented towards the victims of violence, uh, and. I just know that Gary would have kept on finding ways to give his life to justice for the victims of violence, whether or not IJM had worked. Right. Hmm. And I think about one of the entrepreneurial things I was involved in when I was 28 years old, uh, two friends who I really barely knew, to be honest. um, And I took over a magazine uh, that had been started by others, but they, they had sort of run out of runway of their own and we took it over and I remember us saying to each other as we tried to raise money for this thing and, and keep this thing going, we have no idea if we can succeed at this magazine, but we want to do whatever we do in such a way that we end up uh, friends, ideally friends for life. And we want to exit however we exit <laughs> mm-hmm. um, with deeper love and trust for each other. Now, we we five years later, it failed. Uh, so we didn't find the right business model. It you know, it, it didn't work. We, we raised lots of money and spent lots of people's money, <laughs> but we never figured out how, how to quite make it sustainable. But Bill and Joe, who are those two guys, as well as many others, uh, a woman named Jennifer and, and others who are key to that team and Elizabeth, and I could name all these people. They are still like some of my very best friends in the world. And, and it wasn't because it was easy. And we had some, I mean, there were huge conflicts at, at certain moments b- between certain ones of us. But in the end, like that promise has been kept. And 20 years later, like there's this richness of relationship and and all kinds of fruitful work have come from, from those relationships to this very day. And that it just feels like that's what I can actually promise is that I'm going to use this venture as a chance to grow in love and respect and uh, capacity to create with you whatever happens with the events and the outcomes. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Well, I I can't imagine a better note to end on, so I suppose we ought to wrap up. But thank you both so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Elizabeth. It's great to talk about all this. This has been the third episode of Season 2 of The Redemptive Edge. To read those three articles on designing for a different future, or to find other pieces from Praxis, you can visit journal.praxislabs.org. To learn more about Praxis, visit praxislabs.org. To learn more about the redemptive frame, visit redemptive.is.